What's going on, Renaissance fam? My name is Jordan, one of the pastors here on staff. Before we get started in today's message, I want to pray for us. So Heavenly Father, um, I pray that today would be a day that we'd be able to hear from you. Jesus, come into our hearts right now. Speak to us. Move stuff around if you want to. Uh, but let us hear your word to us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So a few years ago, my wife and I went to Cape Town, South Africa to see a church plant that we were helping to start. And if y'all know us, if you know my wife for sure, man, we love to eat. So the first thing we do whenever we go to any new city is we hop on TripAdvisor. We look at all the reviews and the blogs to see what are the best restaurants. So we found the number one restaurant in Cape Town uh, called Mzanzi. Now, this restaurant was not by the waterfront. It didn't have an amazing view. It was actually in a township and it was kind of in the hood a little bit. Uh, I'll never forget when we first pulled up, you know what I'm saying? I ain't go front, I'm a G, but I, was, I kept my head on a swivel a little bit when we first walked in. And I was surprised, quite honestly, that this was the number one restaurant in all of Cape Town. Again, no, no Paris trained chef, no amazing views. And we walked in and we sat down and the host, the, the owner, Mama Namande, she started to tell us and explain about all the food that we were about to eat. And I ain't gonna hold you, it was one of the best meals I have ever had in my life. So the restaurant was full of tourists. And you know how, uh, you know how Americans are. A woman asked Mama Namande, hey, what do you hope to be doing in five years? Now in her brain, she was thinking that this food is so good and you are number one on TripAdvisor, surely you have to have plans of expansion. You wanna do another couple locations. You wanna take this downtown. And I'll never forget her response. Mama Namande looked at her and said, in five years, I wanna be doing exactly what I'm doing right now, hosting people in my home and cooking them delicious food. Now that moment for me was an epiphany. It made me realize that nothing could ever compete with authenticity, right? Like whenever you have someone who's just authentic and real and they give you like the real authentic thing, like you can have all of the views and all of the, uh, all of the things surrounding something, but like if it's not legit and authentic, then it, it really can't add up. Marvin Gaye and Tommy Terrell said it best, ain't nothing like the real thing. Now, quick aside, I know my parents are probably shaking their head a little bit, asking the question, what does he know about Marvin Gaye and Tommy Terrell? And this is something that black parents do. You play a song 6,000 times. And then when your kids say something about that song that you played 6,000 times, you say, what do they know about that song? I know everything from listening to you play it over and over and over again. All right, detour over. So Mama Namande uh, made me realize something about, about life, uh, about spirituality, that what is most attractive is being genuine. What is most attractive is authenticity. So much so that Jesus's life was marked by this. And one of the most amazing quotes about Jesus came from a man named John, John Gerstner. And here's what he says about Jesus. He says, in Jesus Christ, we see virtues combined that never anywhere else are combined. We see tenderness without weakness, strength without a milligram of harshness, humility without uncertainty. You see unbending convictions and yet complete and utter approachability. You see power without the slightest insensitivity. You see passion without the slightest prejudice. You see total integrity 
without any rigidity, never unthinking, never a false word, never a misstep. And the longer I've been a Christian, the more I've realized that this is the Jesus that doesn't want you just to watch sermons or listen to podcasts or even read the Bible for five minutes a day. This is the Jesus that wants to truly transform us. Now, one of the things that I've loved so much about being in the book of Exodus is that Exodus really is a window into what Christianity is all about. So if you think about major books in the Bible, um, Exodus is a book whose themes run all throughout the Bible. And it is not an exaggeration to say that you cannot understand the teachings of Jesus. You cannot understand Christianity without understanding the Exodus. Now, let me catch y'all up for those of you who are new. Um, shout out to everybody who's been tracking with us so far in the series. But Exodus is really a book about freedom. God's people were enslaved in Egypt for 430 years. And so far, what we've been studying is God's miraculous freedom of, of his people. And there's a couple of themes that we're going to see in today's scripture in chapters 13 and 14 that on the surface, they might sound kind of like, oh, yeah, I've heard that before. But man, they are really, really powerful concepts as we seek to understand uh, what it means to be a genuine, authentic follower of, of Jesus. Now, here's the first thing that we see in Exodus 13 and 14. So Exodus 13 and 14, they're talking about what God had just done and God had just freed his people. And here's what it says. In the future, when your son asks, what does this mean? Say to him, by the strength of his hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Now, what Egypt represents in this book in Exodus is an insurmountable enemy. 430 years, they had been in slavery and under oppression. And what this uh, represents for us, it shows us a window into the human condition. Now, when Jesus says that he is the Passover lamb, something we talked about a couple of weeks ago, what Jesus was insinuating and saying is that humanity is under a power of sin that we cannot free ourselves from. Now, my boy, Rich Velotis, I quoted this a couple of weeks ago, and it's such a good quote. Uh, I figured I'd say it again. He said this, sin is not just something we do, but a power humanity is under. We can't educate ourselves out of its grip. We don't overcome it through progressive achievements, nor by moral consistency. The antidote for sin is found in a power outside of ourselves, the cross of Christ. Now, this is really, really important because a lot of people understand Christianity as a decision that you, you made one day. And if you approach it from this perspective, you are not going to have the authenticity and the genuine faith that God wants you to have. So the first thing I want to talk about today that we see in this book of Exodus is this, and this is going to prepare you for barbershop arguments when barbershops really open back up. Uh, Christianity for every single person is always a miracle. It is always supernatural. In chapter 13, the children of Israel did not think their way out of Egypt. God had to free them miraculously. Now, when New Testament writers talk about the nature of your faith, they don't talk about it as one day you made a decision or you were raised in a Christian home and you watched your grandmother go to church and she took you to church. And one day you said, well, I might as well do it too. That is not what the New Testament writers or the book of Exodus talks about in relation to our faith. And here's what they say in Colossians 1, the Apostle Paul, he says this, he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. 
In him, Christ, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, look at those words again. We were rescued from the domain of darkness and then transferred into the kingdom of the son he loves. Now, here's why this is so important. I've probably heard a hundred times this argument uh, in a barbershop somewhere. Not that I have a lot of use for barbershops anymore, but here's, here's how the argument goes. There's always some hotep, super woke dude who's breaking down different things. And he comes in and says, the only reason black people are Christians is because 500 years ago, slave traders forced your ancestors to become Christian. And as a result, they adopted it. And now you are a Christian. Now, if, you, if that were true, that would, be, that would be really whack, right? Like if the only reason I'm a Christian is because like slave traders made my ancestors Christians, then like that would be not something that I would wanna follow. And if you were a person who was following Christ and you were saying, man, my ancestors just forced people to become Christians and this is why it's the world's most adopted religion, that would be a pretty whack thing. But to, to say that is to misunderstand Christianity completely. It's not something that you just accept or acquiesce. Christianity is not something that you just adopt because someone else can make you do it. Christianity is always talked about as something that is miraculous. It's, it's supernatural. Now, here's what Jesus says when he talks about what it means to be a follower of his. Here's what he says in John 3. Uh, he says, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Jesus was talking to a man named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was confused. He says, well, how can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot answer. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb and be born. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, unless, uh, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of the water and of spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. Now, this concept of being born is a really, really fascinating one. And here's what is true about 100% of people who were ever born on this planet. No one decides to be born. No one asks to be born. No one works to be born. It is, as John says, it is the gift of God. Even further, pushing this analogy further, to be born again means that nothing you've ever done before ever matters. And this is why a lot of religious leaders had such a problem with Jesus's teachings. Now, some of us are thinking right now that, all right, well, what about, like, what about our free will? Like, doesn't God give us free will to choose certain things? I'm very glad you asked that. Like when, when, when scripture says that we were rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of the son that he loves, when Jesus says that we have to be born again, he's not saying that we don't have free will, but he is saying that what it takes to become a Christian is like beyond our capacity to choose. If you have a dog, I want you to do this. I want you to go on eBay and I want you to buy some calculus textbooks. And I want you, when you leave one day, I want you to put the calculus textbooks all over the floor, right near the dog's food bowl. And when you come back, and I want you to make sure the dog sees it so, so he or she can open it to whatever page they wanna look at. When you come back, that dog is not going to be barking A squared plus B squared equals C squared not because they don't have access to it, but because it is beyond their capacity to do. Here's what we see about the nature of Christianity from the book of Exodus and all throughout the New Testament. It is not something that you merely can choose. Nobody can beat the Holy Spirit into you. It is something that has to happen supernaturally. Scripture teaches us that personally receiving Jesus is dependent on God 
And it is a beautiful gift that we respond to, not decide on. Here's what Paul says in Ephesians 1. This is so dope. He says, for God chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. The story of scripture is not men and women being forced to adopt Christianity or adopt anything else. It is a miracle. Every single person who has placed their faith in Christ, they actually have come to know God before the foundation of the world, what we see here in, in Ephesians. Now that leads us to another concept that I want us to wrestle with really quickly. Like, but what about all the people who claim to be Christians? Uh, are all of their lives, this, this miraculous Jesus came into their life and, and turned their life around? Um, I would say no, actually. Jesus would say the same thing. Uh, there's a scripture in Matthew 7, and many preachers have said that this is the scariest scripture in all of the Bible. And in Matthew 7, Jesus is talking to people, and he says, on the last day, I'm going to tell people, depart from me. I never knew you. There are a lot of people who are what I would call cultural Christians, meaning they just added Jesus to a life that they have already chosen, but they have not experienced this miraculous transformative power in their lives that God truly invites us to that is a real relationship with him. So number one, Christianity is always a miracle. Number two, the second thing we see in the story of Exodus that I think is a really powerful parallel to the nature of our spiritual lives is that Christianity, and I hate this part, Christianity is dependent. Meaning there is no version of Christianity that will allow you independence. It doesn't exist. So here's what we see in Exodus 13, verses 20 through 22. It says, they, these are the children of Israel, they set out from Succoth and camped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. The Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to lead them on their way during the day and in a pillar of fire to give them light at night so they could travel day or night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night never left its place in front of the people. Now, the children of Israel were released from Egypt. And here we see in the text that there is this presence of God that is leading his people. And it says that the, the pillar of God never left from in front of the people. Now, here's what's fascinating about Christianity. God will never give you guidance. God does not give you guidance. What Christianity is, is God does guidance. And I know a lot of preachers always want to be deep and like say something like, now watch this. But I want you to think about it. God, Jesus in scripture, he does not give guidance. He does guidance. Jesus assumes that the nature of your relationship is one of shepherd and sheep. And the shepherd does not bark out command to say, yo, meet me on a corner of two fifth at 7 p.m. The shepherd has a rod and a staff and they are present with the sheep at all times. And they are leading the sheep because they know the sheep are bound to go astray without them. The nature of Christianity, the nature of our walk, and a lot of us need to hear this, is not that one day you will be autonomous in yourself and you'll grow to a point to where you don't need God, but rather over time you will realize and continue to, to become aware of your constant dependence on him. This past week in our DNA group, we looked at the concept of prayer and I was watching Lester teach in a video. And to be perfectly honest, I was deeply convicted thinking about how often I'm tempted to move to make decisions without praying as if 
I don't need God leading me and guiding me every single step of the way. Now, this is not just the book of Exodus. This is not just scriptures in New Testament. Whenever actually the Bible talks about faith in general, it always talks about it as something that maintains a daily dependence on God. One of my favorite stories in the Bible, uh, it's probably one of my favorites because it's something that it really kind of upsets me when I read it. And then like I get so tense even thinking about it is a story of a man named Abraham. And his story is told in Genesis and also told again in Hebrews 11. And in the book of Hebrews, here's what it says about, about Abraham. It says, by faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as an inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. God called Abraham and said, Abraham, go. Where am I going? Just start walking and I'll tell you where you're going next. Like that is the nature of faith. The children of Israel in Exodus, all they had to do every single day was follow where God was leading them. And this is the nature of Christianity. For the last 20 years, I've been wrestling with this scripture in my own mind uh, from Luke 9 and 23, where Jesus is talking to his disciples. He says, if anybody wants to follow me and be my disciple, you have to deny yourself, pick up your cross daily and follow me. Every single day to be a Christian is to make the decision to be dependent, to lay down your will and to follow wherever God leads you. Now, this is probably the thing I dislike the most about Christianity. It's probably the thing that I dislike the most about what it means to follow Jesus because it takes Jordan Rice off of the throne of his life. It takes me out of the driver's seat and it, I don't, I'm not even riding shotgun in my own life. I'm in the back seat in the middle cramped, cramped together and this is what normal, real, uh, authentic Christianity is. And here's, here's the beauty of the journey. It's a challenge for sure. It's a challenge because particularly when we find ourselves in moments where we would not have taken a certain path for our lives, where we would have had something very different, a very different picture for our lives, we have to struggle to be dependent and trust what God says to us more than what we are seeing. We have to trust, if we are dependent, we have to trust what God is saying to us more than what we are seeing. And this is a pretty scary thing, which leads me to my third point about what Christianity truly is. Christianity is, it's a fight. It's not easy. It's not something that you go through life and it's just like an escalator ride up and it's just beautiful and it's all puppies and roses. And every single time you, you're, you're, you're thinking about God, you just feel warm and tingly on the inside. Man, that's, that's actually not real Christianity. What do we see here in the book of Exodus? In Exodus 14, verses 10 through 12, it says, As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were Egyptians coming after them. The Israelites were terrified and cried out to the Lord for help. They said to Moses, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us to die in the wilderness? Why have you done this? Why have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Or what have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Isn't this what we told you in Egypt? Leave us alone so that we may serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than die in the wilderness. Now, God had just freed his people and now they see the enemy that they thought was a distant enemy never coming back right in front of them now. And they're terrified. They're scared. 
Now, what does it show us about me and, and you? I think it helps us to set our expectations of what we should expect our lives to consist of. What does it mean to really be in real relationship with a real God? That sometimes God allows really frightening things for us to see in some ways to reveal to us the actual source of what we are trusting in. Now, right now, if I were to ask you, uh, do you trust God with your finances? If you got a great job and the check is cut, that direct deposit is hitting every other week, then yeah, you might say, you might be tempted to think that, yeah, I trust God with my finances. I give to Renaissance. I'm, I'm generous with, with, my, with my funds. And that might be true how you're feeling right now. But let HR from your job email you tomorrow that they are downsizing 50% of the company. And let's see how much anxiety rises up in your stomach. For those of us who think that we trust God with our health and our bodies, that sounds great. That sounds well and good. But let your doctor send you an email saying that the blood work came back as abnormal. If you say you trust God with your kids, that's all well and good. But let the school say that your kids are really exhibiting some peculiar behaviors and see how much you would be un unsettled. When we encounter moments in life that we see real opposition in front of us, it actually shows us the challenge to truly trust in what God tells us over what we can see. So Romans 8 and 28 tells us that God is working all things out for the good of those who love the Lord and who are the called according to his purpose. But there are some times when what God is allowing is so painful or so confusing that we cannot fathom how this is a good thing. Sometimes God puts people in situations in our lives that are just limits, they're limitations for us, they're frustrations, they're agonizing things in our lives. And we wonder, God, why in the world would you allow this thing to exist in, in my life? And God tells us that he's working, even in that situation, maybe you're in that situation right now. Now, the reality of Christianity is that it's a fight. It's a fight to trust and to believe in what God says over what you are seeing and what you are feeling in the moment. And here's what we see perfectly in the story of the children of Israel as they, are leading, as they are leaving Egypt. They see this enemy coming at them and they're terrified, as it says in the text. And what's going on? There is a fight going on inside of their life. And you know what? This is actually a really good and, and normal thing. All of us should actually expect our relationship with God to be a fight. It should be a wrestling match. There's a book by a man named J.C. Ryle called Holiness. And here's what he talks about with respect to the nature of our faith being a fight. Here's what he says. There is a vast quantity of religion in the world which is not true, genuine Christianity. It passes muster. It satisfies sleepy consciences. But it is not real. It is not the real thing which was called Christianity thousands of years ago. There are thousands of men and women who go to churches and chapels every Sunday and call themselves Christians. Their names are in the baptismal register, but you never see any fight about their religion, no spiritual conflict, effort, or self-denial. They know literally nothing at all. It is certainly not the Christianity of the Bible. True Christianity is a fight. Now, one of the things I love to talk about is Jordan has two different versions of Jesus. I have the Jesus of the Bible that I read about and I hopefully am preaching about. And then I have the Jesus of my imagination. Here's what the Jesus of my imagination does. Like he never wants me to get like too uncomfortable. 
Like he doesn't really, really want me to forgive people that say something crazy. Like he wants me, my Jesus wants me to clap back, right? But when I see the Jesus of scripture, I see Jesus actually asking me to do things that like I would never do unless he told me to do it. And I see this every single time I have to forgive someone. And, um, you know, I'm an attorney by trade. I love to argue and I hopefully have a good way with words. But man, there's sometimes, especially on Twitter, people just talk crazy. And like, I want to clap back. And sometimes I have, don't judge me on that. But my innate response to someone saying something crazy is clap back. My innate response when someone who I actually know in real life, like does something to me that's messed up, talks behind my back or something like, yeah, I want to expose them for what they have done. And I don't want to forgive them. I don't want to accept their apology. I, I don't want to forgive them. I want them to pay for what they have done. But Jesus tells me to forgive. How many times should we forgive? Jesus, his disciples asked him seven times, 70 times seven. Jesus pushes the limits on what it means to follow him so far beyond the limits of human comfort. And when I think about my life, I can list a hundred different examples in the way that I know God wants me to behave and to believe. And true Christianity is, it's a conflict. It has to be, it should be. You should be experiencing moments in your life where you are saying to yourself, I would not do that unless Jesus, unless God were directly leading me in that direction. And you should be feeling an internal tension in where God wants to take you and where you are right now. And I think that's one of the clearest indications that we are actually in relationship with the real Jesus. True Christianity is, it's a fight. It's a fight to lay down our wills to God's will. Tonight, I want you to pray the Lord's Prayer. And I want you to pray this line, not my will, but your will be done. That's a fight. It's a fight every single day we choose to lay down our will and accept God's will for our lives, whatever that will is for us. So yes, Christianity is a miracle. It doesn't happen because of that we chose it one day. Uh, yes, it is dependent. God will never give you a version of faith that is allowing you to be autonomous and making your own decisions. Uh, yes, Christianity is a fight. It's so hard to lay down our, our will for our lives. But the good news is also that Christianity is victorious. Here's what we see in the book of Exodus that I think is a great parallel for our faith. In chapter 14, But Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and see the Lord's salvation that he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you must be quiet. One of the things that I'm hoping to uh, recover in 2021 in my life is a bold faith like this to believe that God is victorious on my behalf. Now, this is particularly true for everybody who's struggling with maybe addictions, disappointment, or if you're like me, just struggling with you. Jesus promises us that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And I don't want us believing the lie that we're left to ourselves, as Jesus promises us in John, that he will not leave us as orphans, or to believe that like we're defeated. Jesus says to be of good cheer because he has overcome the world. We are not defeated. Christianity is inherently victorious. And here's the good news of the gospel. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Think about that. How much power is necessary to raise someone from the dead? That power, uh, scripture says, is bringing life to our mortal bodies. And we access that power. We access that power 
through what God calls the ordinary means of grace, scripture reading, prayer, community, setting aside time to be with him so that God can fill us with, with his life so that we can experience real victory in our life. Now, listen, I got two kids at home running around, online school, a million different things, fear about getting pandemic, you know, about getting COVID, all the things that we're all dealing with these days. And one of the things, the biggest challenges I have now is not just to do anything, but just to be in God's presence and to allow God to transform me in these moments. And it's something that I'm really scheduling time for this week to really make sure that I can hear from God and I can allow God's power to flow through me so I can experience the victory that God wants me to have in me, in my relationships as a father, as a husband, as a brother, as a son, and everything I do. And I actually want to challenge you this week to make time to make room for God so that you can experience what he wants to do in your life. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, um, Lord, I, I thank you for this window into what the Christian life is. And I pray that for everybody watching and listening, that we would be people who are dependent on you and allow you to transform us uh, moment by moment and day by day. I ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.